Welcome to the Success is Subjective podcast series brought to you by ParentTrainers.com, presented by Lilly Consulting. I'm your host, Joanna Lilly. In today's episode, I had the pleasure of interviewing Ken Gilbert. Ken works with adolescents and young adults struggling with substance abuse disorders, trauma, attachment issues, and a variety of co-occurring disorders such as anxiety and depression. His primary emphasis is on the healing that occurs in the therapeutic relationship. He uses a relational and relatable style that young people find both refreshing and nourishing. Ken appreciates working with clients who have had multiple treatment experiences with limited long-term success. He views addiction as a universal experience that relates to one's inability to be present in life, connect with self and others, and experience true intimacy. Now, it's important to note that Ken was born in New Jersey and was raised in the Bay Area in California. He earned a Bachelor of Science degree in Marketing Communications from Emerson College. His own struggles with substance addiction during adolescence led to his own treatment numerous times with limited effect until he attended Evoke Therapy programs as a young adult. He has been in recovery ever since. As a survivor of childhood trauma, he sees the undeniable connection between trauma, addiction, and the ways young people adapt to gain a sense of control and safety in a world that feels so unsafe. Ken earned a Master's of Science in Clinical Mental Health Counseling from Oregon State University and is a registered LPC intern in the state of Oregon. He is trained in somatic and attachment-focused EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, and sees this as a powerful therapeutic modality to treat complex trauma, single incident trauma, and a variety of other mental health conditions. Without waiting any further, here is Ken. All right, Ken, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Joanna. Thanks for having me. I'm super Happy to be excited. here. Yeah, I'm super excited to have you and to hear your story. So why don't we, let's just dive right in. Why don't you tell the listeners, where did you grow up and what were the expectations uh, around post-secondary education for you? Sure, yeah. So... I was born in New Jersey, but I didn't spend much time there. I I grew up primarily in in the Bay Area in Northern California and in a pretty small town, suburban town outside of Oakland and San Francisco. And the expectations for post-secondary education, you know, in my family, whether they were spoken or not spoken, were that you were going to go to college and you're going to get, you know, your, your bachelor's degree and, and likely probably a master's degree of some kind. Um, after that in, in my family, everyone, you know, was, was fairly successful in quotes in terms of their career. Um, and, and education was very valued and, and it was, kind of an unspoken, just this is what happens. And not just in my family, but I think in the greater context of the community in which I was raised, it was like, it wasn't a matter of if, it was a matter of where. And there was so much pressure, I think, put on people to not only go somewhere, but to go somewhere that is seen in a particular light, whether it was, you know, you're going to go to an Ivy League school or you're going to go to, you know, UC Berkeley, you know, which is a school that was a few minutes away from where I grew up. And, 
And, and I think that that took a lot of toll on especially sensitive people like me that were trying to figure out and navigate the education system. But that was sort of the expectation was not if, but kind of where and what. That does sound like intense pressure for somebody that's 17 slash 18, you know, like, gosh, where am I going? So where, where did you go and how was the college transition? So in high school, I didn't do that well. So, um, you know, from the perspective of maybe my environment, I thought I did okay. I went to Syracuse University and by the skin of my teeth. I mean, I barely graduated high school on my second semester of, of senior year. You know, I, I almost failed a few classes. Like it was really touch and go. And, and honestly, probably could have benefited from a gap year of some kind, um, experiencing something a little bit different. I mean, emotionally, I was not ready to go to school, but I went to Syracuse and that's where I started. And I didn't end there. So yeah, I ended up transferring to to a college in Boston um, my sophomore year, uh, a smaller school called Emerson College. And that's ultimately where I would, where I finished. Well, and you said too that you were like socially, emotionally not mature enough to be like, you, you could have taken some time to kind of grow up in that arena rather than the academic space, even though you, you got into Syracuse by the skin of your teeth. So I'm just curious, like what is it about the transferring to Emerson that allowed you, I'm, I'm making an assumption essentially that you, you did mature, right? And you were able to thrive on that campus. Was it because it was a different size? Did they have different supports? Like what made Emerson be the place where it became a successful transfer for you? So the way that I remember being at Syracuse was mainly that you know, it was my freshman year. I didn't have a lot of skills as far as, you know, coping goes. So, you know, at, at this point, at 18 years of age, I, I had already been using substances for several years. It started to escalate. My mental health probably deteriorated my freshman year of college. Like, I just felt so isolated and really depressed and didn't know how to make, you know, foster relationships and, and was so far from home and any sense of kind of normalcy or, or belonging that um, really the transfer actually was one of those things where it was kind of a, like in 12 step culture, we would call it like a geographical. Like I just thought like, well, if I just go somewhere else, it'll probably fix this problem. <laughs> and, and I played a lot of sports in high school and I played baseball and, and there was a smaller D3 school and the coach was like, yeah, just come play baseball. And I was like, oh, I'll just play sports again and that'll fix everything. So, I mean, that was, that was kind of, I think some things in a way improved. Like I, I, I joined a sports team and I had a sense of like a little bit more of community and being in a bigger city. And it wasn't gray constantly, like in Syracuse, it was, I felt like it was when I remember it was just gray for like the whole year, which probably wasn't true, but that might've been more like my mental landscape at the time. But so, yeah, in some ways, I think the shift helped. I found something I thought I wanted to study at the time. And so I, I, there was certainly a little bit more hope. Oh, that's promising. I get it often, and I'm sure you do too, where we talk about, like you said, that the geography. Well, if I just go somewhere else, 
it will compartmentalize and like that chapter is like behind me, right? Like nothing, you know, this is a clean slate when reality, like unless you're actually making some significant changes, especially around mental health and substance use, that's going to trail you, right? All of a sudden it's going to, it's going to pop up in your new environment as well. So I'm curious, you know, post Emerson, with that being a successful undergraduate experience for you, what happened after you graduated? So I graduated um, and I had a degree in marketing communications, basically, I think is what it was called. And it was something that like, I think I convinced myself I did, I, there was a lot of like cognitive distortion stuff going on of, around like, this is what I want to do. Like, and this was, you know, in a time where it was like, you know, 2010, 2011, where social media was really popular and hot. And so I was like, you know, I'll just move back to the Bay Area. And there's a lot of, you know, industry growth in terms of in, in tech and in advertising and things like that. So that was my path. And so I moved, I moved from Boston back um, to my, you know, home context and, you know, got an apartment in San Francisco um, and started working, you know, for a, an ad agency, basically, and, and did that for a few years. But struggled a lot like it wasn't what I wanted to do like it, it was all this path that like I thought I was supposed to be on right like I'm supposed to make money and I'm supposed to you know be in business in some capacity but I hated it and I just woke up every day and was thinking to myself like how do I not go to work today and like all along like I'm addicted to drugs too so like I'm navigating this like trying to be a professional but also like really not professional at all. And, you know, mental health certainly deteriorating. So I had a few different jobs, you know, would be in and out of rehabs and then get let go and then try to find a new one. And, and in the balancing act of that was just incredibly challenging. There wasn't really one. And really, it was just driven by this kind of sense of purposelessness. Like there, there wasn't, um, that it was such an incongruence internally for me. Like I, I just, felt like something had to give there had to be a, a new path forward like it wasn't going to work this way well i'm so curious too because that lifestyle right those expectations compared to where you are now and what you're doing seems like there was there was quite the bridge right academically educationally and just like you said like with purpose so how did you get to where you are now? And tell, why don't you tell our listeners, like, what are you doing? Sure, yeah. So, uh, well, I'm a therapist now um, at Evoke Therapy Programs, Wilderness Program. But how I got there was, so I went to treatment, I went to treatment probably nine times in some capacity between the ages of, I don't even really remember, 20 two and 25 maybe the last time I went to treatment I was 25 years old so I tried a lot of different forms of treatment I did inpatient outpatient you know sober livings um things of that nature so you know finally my you know my family um who was working with someone at the time recommended I go to wilderness 
And this was one of the things that I hadn't tried before. And it was, I think, in many ways, a last ditch effort from my family to kind of like, okay, here's this kind of more novel thing that we haven't heard of before. And, you know, are you open to it? And, and I was, and, and really was desperate. I think at that time, like, gosh, is something wrong with me that this, like, you know, I can't, I don't just get it or like, I'm not, you know, and I would get it for chunks of time and get 30 days here or or 60 days there. But, um, you know, having longer term kind of a, a foundation of recovery was really challenging. So, um, I went to I actually went to evoke as a client and had that experience there. And it was just something that I, I, I was in a place where I think I was more ready for one. And two, I think it was a context that uh, allowed me to do more than just, you know, go to meetings and be in psychoeducational groups and, and do my therapy, but still like watch TV at night. And like, you know, it, there was something really disconnecting about it that also allowed me to learn how to connect, like learn how to be in relationships. And I had this moment in wilderness where it sounds really obvious, and I probably had these moments before, but the difference is that I believed it this time, which is that I was like, I don't need to be my parents. Like, I don't need to be my parents. I don't need to be my grandfather. I don't, you know, I don't need to be my sister who was, you know, younger than me and already well on her way to being a medical doctor. And I was like, I could just be me and I could do what I want to do. And I, I tell that story sometimes and people are like, yeah, no, duh, like you can't do that. But it wasn't that obvious to me. And so I, you know, th- there was a part of me that was like, well, I ended up going to kind of like an aftercare program in, in Bend. And, and then I just never left. And I was like, I'm going to get a job and like, I, I got this job like moving uh, like shingles for roofs. Like I just put would like go and like strap into a roof and put the shingles up, you know, making 10 bucks an hour. And like, so I've never done anything like that. And I was like, you know, it's kind of a new experience. And so after, you know, having about a year of sobriety under my belt and, and kind of some more uncertainty around what it was I really wanted to do, I thought to myself like, you know, some of the people that had worked with me had had reached out and said, you know, have you ever thought about being a field instructor? And and so I was willing to give it a shot. I thought that the schedule would be such that it would allow me time to work really hard for a week and then have a week off to kind of figure out, okay, well, what's my next move and where do I feel juice in my life? And And what I found as a field instructor was that I felt like I at least had some, maybe not skill, but some capacity to be able to, you know, be with other people that are struggling in similar ways that, that I had struggled as a young person. And probably in some ways at that age still was more struggling with and, and just being able to have rich conversations with young people that were, you know, some ambivalent, some really committed, some, you know, different stages of change and just allowing them to take up space, like felt really good. And so that was sort of, once I had that kind of realization, I think, you know, I, I wanted to increase my skill. And part of that was, well, you know, maybe I'll just see what happens and apply to grad school and maybe I'll get in and, and try to become a therapist. So, so I applied to one grad school only <laughs> because I didn't want to leave Bend and I just wanted to, so I applied to Oregon State, which has a campus in Bend and, and got in and did that program and 
and worked as an assistant the whole time at, at Evoke, um, working with another therapist here and just got a ton of really amazing experience and some great mentors. Uh, and, and that's kind of how it progressed. I love that story. I'm curious too now, because I asked this to all of the people that I interview, which is, do you see yourself as successful right now? Yeah, I see myself as successful for sure. I, I think, well, I think there's a lot of things that I still want to learn, right? There's a lot of things. I'm a, I'm a newer therapist. I've been, you know, practicing for about a year and a half. Like uh, there's so much I don't know. I'm learning every day. So that process is amazing, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm totally successful in the way I see myself. I think, you know, just the gift of being able to wake up and not be sick and have freedom and, you know, get to make choices, um, and to impact people just a little bit. Like when I got into grad school, my goal was like, maybe I could help one person, (laughs) you know, like maybe I could help one person that would feel really good. And I think sometimes just, you know, going through the process of, um, of, a, of a wilderness therapy treatment experience with a client and a family, and then, you know, hearing feedback about how perhaps maybe I've helped guide or be on the journey, uh, like that stuff is so rewarding to, to hear families and clients talk about that. And to me, that's success. And it's not defined by, you know, pay or status or, you know, anything like that. It's something I can actually feel that's like tangible. I can feel it in my body. And and that to me is so much more important. So yeah, I would say so. Well, I'm I'm so glad that you said that too, in terms of the like, yeah, I'm going to become a therapist. And if I can just help one person, I actually often say that on this podcast is like your story, like regardless of who I'm interviewing, like your story is probably going to help at least one person. And that's my gratitude to you for being willing to share that, that story, right? Like you, you said, Hey, you know, here was my experience, right? Based on where you grew up, the expectations around education, your college experience, your like collegiate athletic experience, like, right. Somebody in that journey is going to resonate and that's going to help them make a decision for themselves, right? Like you're saying, if they're waking up sick every day, like, maybe I can change. Maybe I can find the purpose. Maybe it'll end up being something similar to your journey, or maybe it'll be something completely different. But um, I just love that because that's so true. In terms of working with young adults, um, you know, just thinking about those that you help right now as a therapist using that lens, if you could give one piece of advice to a young adult who is struggling right now, whether it's somebody who is similarly in your situation in your, you know, late teens, early twenties, or just broadly struggling in quote, what piece of advice would you give that young person right now? I think the thing that is sticking with me right now in our current climate and seems to resonate a lot is that, we, we all get, you know, we've talked about this messaging that I received and that we all receive as young people, um, you know, whether it's in childhood and adolescence and even into young adulthood, um, whether it's overt or covert or from our environment or our family of origin. And, and we pick up all these messages around what we're supposed to do. Um, I think that 
sometimes we, we, we over-prioritize what we're supposed to do and then neglect our mental health needs. And, and so many of the clients that I work with are, you know, bright, sensitive, caring, uh, amazing young adults. And if they can focus and take care of the, you know, their emotional and mental health first, I don't worry about the rest of it, right? Like, and so I guess the advice would be priorities, you know, evaluating our priorities and doing kind of taking a first things first approach and, and tending to the part of ourselves that we don't get taught very much about when we're in school <laughs> and taking care of how we regulate our emotions and how we see ourselves and, and, and that the rest, I believe, if we can do that or be engaged in that, we'll start to fall into place a bit more. Well, that's great advice. I'm going to just ask one more question because I also think that it's, you know, you have a very, you know, because of your own personal journey, you also have the experience of, you know, seeing your family's involvement in your struggle. And then now that you're a therapist and you're working closely with parents and families of young adults, uh, young adults who are struggling with that, the mental health and the substance use. Is there a piece of advice similarly that you would give to a parent right now with somebody that is struggling? Yeah, the advice that I would give parents, um, and, I, and I hope it doesn't come off as too blunt, but is to do their own work. And, <laughs> and what I mean by that just... Blunt's okay in this case. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> Yeah, I think that, um, you know, and this is just something that philosophically, I think from some of my mentors has trickled down into my awareness as being really important that if we want to provide a secure and safe attachment and really show up for our kids in a way that's going to be safe and containing for them, then, then we need to do our own work as parents. And so, because we're going to communicate stuff that we don't want to communicate to our kids if we're not engaged in our own process. And so, you know, parents will ask me a lot, like, what, what is the thing that I can do? And it's often looking inward as opposed to what's the quick fix that I can do to, you know, change something for my child. Well, I wish there was one, but. Yeah. And when you're saying kind of looking inward, are you specifically recommending, you know, like books or seeing a therapist or Al-Anon or all the above? Are you giving those specific examples to families? Because I think like, you know, as somebody who works in the space, I know what you mean when you say do your own work. But for somebody listening and they say, what the hell does that mean? What does it mean? I am ambitious, so I would say all of the above, but the way I would prioritize it too. I, I would say, to me, the, the most important one would be therapy, some kind of therapy with another person, right? Where we get to, as parents, take our stuff too, right? And if you haven't done therapy before, or you have and haven't had a great experience, that there are good therapists out there. And, and my hope is that, you know, you can find one that works for you. There's, I've had amazing therapists and I've had some that I haven't loved. So uh, even some kind of intensive experience, I think can be really beneficial for parents too, that maybe haven't done a ton of, you know, individual therapy as sort of a jump start. So kind of a three or four day focused intensive experience. Uh, and then, yeah, resources like Al-Anon or 
Dakota that are kind of community-based support, I think can be um, really beneficial for some. And, and then, you know, things like reading and stuff are, are great as well. I, I, I think that can be a huge support, but I think nothing really beats the one-on-one or, or kind of group, like being engaged in a therapeutic process. So that would be my, my go-to first. Perfect. I appreciate the clarification there. Like I said earlier, I do think that, you know, I'm grateful that you're sharing your story with the audience. And I know that there's at least one young adult or one parent of a young adult who's struggling right now hearing this story and it's going to resonate with them and they'll, they'll follow your advice or they'll reach out or they'll do their own work. So thank you, Ken, for being on the podcast. Gosh, yeah, I hope so. And uh, thanks so much, Joanna. I really appreciate it. It's always great to chat. That's it for this week's Success is Subjective episode. Stay tuned for our next episode where you can bet it'll be another amazing human sharing their very personal story with the world. You can follow me, Joanna, on Instagram at Lily Consulting and on Facebook at Lily Consulting LLC. Most importantly, though, check out the resources link on my website at lilyconsulting.com. And that's L-I-L-L-E-Y consulting.com. Or you can just search on Google for Lily Consulting. You can also download and subscribe to listen to the Success is Subjective interviews on any popular podcast app, such as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Make sure you check out the show notes where you'll find contact information, website details, links to articles, and all social media for our guest. Once again, thank you to parenttrainers.com for sponsoring this podcast series. And thank you, our listener, for tuning in. And remember, there is no single path through life. Success is what you make it.